0: It's been a morning, hasn't it? Wow. It's been wonderful. We all love Christmas carols, don't we? It doesn't really matter whether you consider yourself a religious person or not. We love to sing along with the old favorites. And this morning, I think there's some new favorites. And we love uh, the story in this Bible passage behind me. We love it. The shepherds and the angels. It's the classic end of year school play, isn't it? Every parent knows it well because you're the one who has to organize the dishcloth for your son's head. (laughs) Strap on the dressing gown, get the hockey stick, turn it upside down. That's the staff. Your daughter gets uh, the tinsel headband. She gets the tinsel headband. uh, And then if she doesn't have the dress that she wore to your sister's wedding, there's the sheet with the 50 safety pins down the back. Wings are a little trickier, or at least they were in my day. I see that now Toys R Us have cottoned onto something. But wings used to be a couple of coat hangers and some tinfoil. Bottom line, it's a happy story with a happy ending. We love it. Classic children's play. But to think of it like that is to try and domesticate a wild animal. To try and cuddle a lion. Because this is no fairy tale. How do we know? Well, first, Luke, the man who wrote it, was no Hans Christian Andersen, he was a doctor. Historian, man of science, he set out to write an accurate eyewitness account, a history, not a bedtime story. And second, this doesn't read like a fairy tale. Another man of science, Sir Isaac Newton, said, There are more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than in any secular history. Nowhere is that more accurate than in this passage of scripture. Notice it doesn't start with once upon a time in a land far away. Any decent fairy tale starts that way. Why? Well, because a fairy tale aims for the widest possible audience. So the story needs a moral that can be enjoyed and applied by anyone, anywhere. It can't be locked down into local, specific, historical detail. It loses its wide appeal. So it's once upon a time in a land far away. But our passage is full of specific historical detail. Look at how it starts. Not once upon a time, but in those days. Which days? The days of Caesar Augustus. Where? Not in some nameless faraway land, but in the Roman province of Judea in the village of Bethlehem. The story goes on and it gets even more specific. Caesar issued a decree for a census And the census took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. That is a terrible way to write a fairy tale. I mean, what kind of boring detail is that? You might mention someone as famous as Caesar. You probably wouldn't mention the census. You certainly wouldn't mention a low-level bureaucrat like Quirinius. I mean, imagine Sleeping Beauty starting like this. Once upon a time in a land far away, there was a king and queen who said every day, Ah, if only we could have a child. But they never had one. This took place when Bandile Masuku was M.E.C. for health in Kauteng. (laughs) You see how ludicrous it is? Homer's Odyssey starts like this. Tell me, O Muse, of that ingenious hero who traveled far and wide after he had sacked the famous town of Troy. So Homer begins with a hero and his courageous exploits in a famous town. But in our story... The principal characters are a builder and his pregnant fiancé traveling under a cloud of shame to some rural backwater because of a bureaucratic decision taken a hundred miles away by the tax authorities. It's too mundane and real and gritty to be fiction. We find the same thing when we get to our beloved shepherds in verse 8. Now, These guys are not cute five-year-olds with dishcloths on their heads. They are not noble park rangers, honest animal lovers. They are rough. Shepherds had such a bad reputation for lying and stealing that they weren't allowed to give legal testimony. They weren't allowed in court. One rabbi said there is no more despised occupation in all the world than shepherds. So these guys were the bottom of the pile. Socially, morally. And yet this is who God chooses to reveal himself to. Isn't it interesting? What happens when the angel appears? Verse 9 tells us they were terrified, these shepherds. Grown men, tough men, hard men, filled with fear. Why were they so scared? Why was the glory of God so terrifying? Granted, it's not something you see every day. But what was it exactly that scared them? Well, the angel gives us a clue because he says to them, you don't have to fear. And they don't have to be afraid because the news is good news. It's not bad news. The good news is that a Savior had been born to them that day. A Savior from what exactly? What was it that they needed saving from that was so terrifying? Well, Luke has already answered this question earlier on in the story. And in chapter 1, he describes salvation as the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of God. He talks about salvation as giving light to those who sit in the darkness of the shadow of death. Do you see now why the shepherds would have been terrified? The moment God's messenger revealed himself to them, they realized God is pure, and we are not. God is worthy of total allegiance and obedience and worship and adoration. And we've gone in the opposite direction. We've ignored him. We've gone after other things, things of our own choosing. We live in the shadow of death. We deserve to die. In a sense, they were naked before God Almighty that night. And in the perfect light for the first time, they saw the reality of their own filth. My friends, this is no fairy tale. This is not a family movie. These are real people with their hearts, their minds, their motives, their lives utterly exposed before God. We read on. The angel promises these shepherds the good news of salvation in the birth of a king. And then what happens? Well, heaven just explodes. It just rips open in light and sound. Now, we've enjoyed singing this morning, but we actually have no idea. Because on that night, it wasn't just a full stage. It was the heavenly multitude. And it wasn't just highly gifted musicians. It was the army of God. It was a military chorus. The army of God praising His glory because instead of responding to human rebellion with a declaration of war... He was giving us the free gift of peace. He was declaring not war, but an armistice, a ceasefire. And notice verse 10, that the news was for all people, for all people. So if it's for all people, how do we get it? It seems to be that peace with God is something that's on offer here. How do we get it? In the story, there are two options embodied by two kings, Caesar and Christ. The angel brought the good news of a king who would save the world and bring peace. That's Christ. What about Caesar? Well, archaeology brings the good news of a king who saved the world and brought peace. We have ancient inscriptions about Caesar saying exactly that. He's called the Son of God. He's called the Savior. His name, Augustus, means holy, majestic. His reign was associated with good news and with peace. So we have two kings making an almost identical claim to bring the good news of divine salvation and peace. They look the same. But actually, they're worlds apart. King Jesus is lying in a feeding trough in Bethlehem while Caesar is sitting on a throne in the capital. Caesar won the peace of Rome through military force. Jesus won the peace of the world through humble service. Caesar summed up his achievement like this. I found Rome in brick and I left it in marble. Jesus simply said, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Do you see the difference? Under Caesar, salvation is... Man's gift to God. Jesus says to God, Look at all I've done. Look what I've achieved. Look at the marble. I'm here to collect my glory. Under Jesus, salvation is God's gift to man. God says to man, Look at Jesus. Look at what he's done. Now I give you freely a share in his glory. So, how do we decide who to follow? Which king is worthy of our allegiance? The way to decide is to remember what we are saved from. Do you remember? Salvation is the forgiveness of sin. The life-threatening danger that we face is sin. So how does Caesar deal with sin? Well, he buries it under a great big pile of achievements and good deeds. A pile that reaches all the way up to heaven so that you can stand on top of the pile, knock on heaven's door, and demand your glory. Here's the problem. The Bible teaches everywhere that the heartbeat of sin is ignoring God and doing things your own way. Now think about this with me. If that's true, then Caesar's pile of good deeds and achievements is in fact a great big pile of sin. Because it's his definition of good. It's his good done his way. On Caesar's model, the pile of good deeds is a monument to his independence and his self-righteousness. And so it ends up being his tombstone. He is buried under his own achievements. They are the very things that condemn him. But Christ, well, he's the opposite. He leaves heaven's glory. Heaven's peace. He comes down into our sinful chaotic world. He lives the life of a humble servant. And yet he still dies the death of a rebel. Under the authority of Caesar. On a Roman cross. Why? Well so that you and I don't have to die a similar death. So that our sin has been punished. So that the justice of heaven has been served so that the armies of heaven don't have to rain down on us in terror, but they can stay where they are and declare the glory of God because of the peace that he has freely given us. This is no fairy tale. This is reality at its very deepest. And so I want to close with, our, with what are perhaps the most important words in our whole passage. They're in Verse 11. You might be able to see them on the screen behind me. Verse 11 says this, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. On that first Christmas, the angel was speaking to the shepherds when he said, Unto you this day. But this Christmas, God is speaking to you. And he says exactly the same thing unto you, this day. You see, the invitation that Christmas presents is for you, today. Not the person next to you. It's for you, today. You have a choice. You can carry on with the Caesar approach to your own DIY salvation. You can carry on thinking, look, I I have done some things I regret, but who hasn't? If I just keep my nose clean, keep the corporate social investment points on my BEE scorecard high if i just keep up those annual payments to the red cross children's hospital you know if i go to the park as long as i've got my dog on the leash if i just keep along the same track well then if if, if there is a heaven i'm pretty sure i'll be in it i'm not a bad guy i've loved my family i've had a good long honest career I'm the kind of person God would want on his team. And when I leave this world, I'm pretty sure I'm gonna be missed and I'm also fairly convinced I'm gonna be welcomed with open arms up there. Now much of that may be true, but in the end, God doesn't care so much how you measure yourself relative to others. He's not all that interested in your assessment of where you sit on the moral hierarchy. What he cares about is how you have related to him. So if you've ignored him and you've acted out of your own self-righteous definition of what is good, do you see that in the end every one of those good deeds is going to turn around and condemn you? Because you did them independently. Good or bad, they're still an act of defiance against God. They are a monument To your independence. And so instead of being evidence for the defense, they end up being evidence for the prosecution. Instead of proving your love for God, they show categorically that you wanted nothing to do with Him. Wouldn't it be better for us, all of us here today, wouldn't it be better for us to be like the shepherds, to see our sin for what it is and to be terrified? And then to hear the good news of a Savior who lived and died for the forgiveness of our sin. So that we have nothing to fear. So that we can sing with the army of God, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is well pleased. My friends, that's the invitation. That's the invitation. It's precious. It's priceless, but it's utterly free. It is a gift from God himself for you this day. If you want to accept that invitation, the way to do it is to pray. And you can pray in your own heart, in the quiet of your own heart, after me. Let's pray together. God Almighty, I don't understand everything, but I do know that I want what you are offering me today. I want the forgiveness of my sin. I want to be at peace with you. I want to be saved by King Jesus. I want to follow him. Please have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Amen.